Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Bible Church, as well as guests or any family members who may be visiting. Uh, a couple announcements uh, before we begin. Uh, we do have uh, a, a new, uh, what will be during the 9 a.m. hour, uh, equipping class that will be held over in the temporary buildings in the back. Uh, there will be more information and directions on the day of, but starting on March 26th, we'll have a new members or anyone who's interested in knowing more about the church and is already a member can attend at that time. It'll be a five-week class. Uh, we'll take the Sunday off for Eastern, and so it'll end on the 16th of April, but begin on the 26th of March. Um, as well, on the 26th, after the service, we'll be having a men's luncheon and uh, lecture at that time, and uh, be going through several areas uh, of the Christian life for Christian men that the elders would like to challenge the men of the church on. Uh, it is uh, required attendance, and so... Um, I can't force you to do anything, but if I act like I do, like I can, then. Uh, and then the following week on April 2nd, after the service, will be a similar thing with the women's luncheon and lecture, um, albeit maybe in a gentler manner. And so that was sarcasm. Uh, now, uh, as we, uh, as moving forward, we are in continuing in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Today we will be covering verses 18 through 20, uh, but I will be reading uh, starting in verse 13 to give the context of the passage today. Um, Just as a a warning, this is a a passage with highly disputed contents in it throughout the long history of the Christian church, and so there might be explanation-heavy aspects, but but I believe it's, it's necessary. And so now reading, and I will read in its entirety and give you the opportunity after reading out loud to pray um, to God to open your your mind and your heart to the truth of his word, to reveal to you the areas of your life that you you deeply are in need of, of giving over to him. And then I will pray for us uh, corporately. So reading now from Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I will tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Uh, please take this time to pray.
Heavenly Father, as your church gathers this morning to worship you and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, death, the burial, and the resurrection, and the fact that the victory attained at that time over sin and death is what the church comes to celebrate on the Lord's day. And albeit we are but dust and sinners, we are made new by our faith in Christ, given to us, purchased by God himself. And Lord, so we come, albeit what we have is meager, we offer it in the fullest, our recognition of your great work through creation, through redemption, and ultimately us looking forward to the consummation. And so we offer our praises through song in recognition of the mighty work of your hand. We offer up our prayers being reminded that we are sinful and have strayed this week. And so understanding even in our repentance that we are forgiven. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, which indwells each believer and seals us in the family of God, a promise to our future inheritance in God's kingdom that we currently are a part of, but will reside in full at the end of the age. So we recognize our great need for you, Lord, in prayer. We celebrate with one another through the fellowship of the saints, our shared union in Christ. And so as we gather as a physical body, our, our joy to see one another is to be a small window of the joy we will hold together in the court of God. And Lord, now we, uh, we recognize that your holy and true word is, is the testimony of your works to us. And through the Spirit, we are given understanding of the word. It is to be our guide in life, in the truth of your character and who we are, in your redemptive work throughout history. And we are at war with ourselves in our sin nature and our deep need of your saving mercy on us moment by moment. Lord, let us celebrate you in the fullness of the Spirit. Let the word shine forth, and let us joyfully be broken by the word. Joyfully be challenged by the word. And also, with even more joy, being comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask today that you would edify and lift up those in Christ amongst us, and that you would call to repentance those in unbelief. We pray this time, Lord, you are glorified, and your name is magnified. In Christ's name, amen.
the centrality of these verses in, in the history of the church can't be ignored. And so the preface to this exhortation is a little bit of the history of the church, just a little bit. And the reality is, is that these verses themselves, the ones that we are looking at today, 18 and 20, these kind of what we'll read very simply um, have led to all kinds of teachings in, throughout the history of the church. As some background, the church, of course, in the early church was unified under one gospel, one teaching, following what the apostles taught, the, the reading of the word, and then the word expands, the church expands. And, and throughout that time, you have false teaching arise, and then orthodox teachers rise in opposition to it. And then you have the beginning of the confessional system when such things would rise up, such as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and and the additions to the Nicene Creed at Constantinople. And then it goes on for such things as the Council of Orange, and so on and so on. But in the midst of that, you had, in the, really the second century, a division in what would be, what was the normative method of church governance, which was local bodies having uh, elders and overseers that were over each congregation that while autonomous, meaning that they governed their own churches, they were also tied together with the others. But near the end or the middle to end of the second century, individuals began to rise up out of these church regions and be then recognized as bishops. And then those bishops were given a type of authority over all of the churches around them. And then ultimately, around the 5th and 6th centuries, one place in particular, the Bishop of Rome, began to be given more and more um, reverence than others. And then very soon, teachings began to rise, where finally there was this idea of this one Bishop of Rome, who was the father of the church and was the descendant spiritually of Peter. And so the main verses used to to push the position of what is the modern-day papacy or the chief cardinal of Rome or what you might know as the pope comes from this verse. And so we have to investigate this verse in light of all of that history because the history continued in the In the 12th century, the East and West churches split. And the East church is what you probably know as the Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox church. But really, prior to that, the East and West had split on the way that they taught and even confessional systems centuries earlier. And what you probably know more of here is about the Protestant Reformation. That in the 16th century, there were many who were pushing against what was a very, very corrupt church and asking for them to reform their ways one of the chief things or problems was the fact that you had one individual over all of the churches universal who actually was given the power to say who would and would not go to heaven and by papal decree could say whether one could or could not enter heaven It's why many of the confessional systems of the post-Reformation era list the Pope as Antichrist. That's not what I'm doing here today. But what I am saying is that these verses have a lot of history. 
a lot of baggage. And for many of you who either came out of the Roman Catholic Church or have family that are a part of it, these things or these discussions may be something that you've had to have on and off. So let's look at the actual verses. In light of that history, let's see what these things actually say. So 17 is the important verse that we did last week, but it's tied to the actual return of what Jesus says to Peter. So when Jesus answered after Peter says, you are the Christ, and says, and Jesus answered and blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And we talked about that. The confession that Peter makes of the recognition that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah was something given to him by God the Father. Peter's knowledge was not his own. It wasn't something he figured out. It was something God superintended through him. So Jesus recognizes the uniqueness of Peter's confession by letting Peter know why it was so unique. It's the first confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited one. And so blessed are you. And then in 18, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so the plain reading of the text itself renders one to look at the way Matthew is writing it, which if you are a student of the Gospels, or you would understand that Matthew is one who is called, who has a high Christology. It means he's, he's often portraying Christ and wants the audience to see him as Messiah, as his audience was primarily Jewish. And so this high Christology of Matthew has this interaction that is also meant in terms of the the grammar itself to say when he asks who they say he is, and Peter states, you are the Christ, his response then says is, you are Peter. You're supposed to see the repetition there. And it's not that Peter's name is also the name for rock, but then he word plays on it by saying a different kind of version of that Greek word to like smaller rock, because I'm going to tell you, if you've heard sermons before where it says, and, and I don't mean to do this, I, I feel like I don't do it very often, but if you've heard that the whole point of this passage is that uh, the word where Peter's name means large rock and then stone means little rock, that's to ensure and show you that either Peter is insignificant or Peter is overly significant. Holy cow, are you missing the point of the text? The wordplay has to do with going back to the actual confession. When Peter is announcing, you are the Christ, and that announcement, Jesus answers first by saying, that was given to you by God. That confession that you just made, that truth you just professed, that no blind eye or hard heart, A fallen man can understand without the superintending work of God. That is the rock on which I'm building my church. The confession of Peter 
not the confession itself, but the resultant understanding of what comes after it. So this is going to be a weird sermon, because I'm going to be going back and kind of I'm going to break it down, and then I'm going to go more some kind of Catholic bastard, and then I'm going to come back again. So, But if you understand the fullness of this, okay, the confession that, okay, here is one who is an unbeliever, and I'm just going to take the pragmatic approach to the rest of the text as it pertains to Peter. If you take this verse to say, Peter, the man, is given the kingdom of heaven, the keys to it, and he, Peter, gets to determine who goes to heaven and who doesn't, well, you would assume that the rest of this story, Peter looks pretty good. But in the next chapter, Jesus calls him Satan. Why? Because he tells Peter he's going to his death. Peter's like, no, you're not. And Jesus, who is tempted as we are when he's in his humiliation, tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, adversary. Get behind me, stumbling stone. Not only that, in chapter 18, two chapters from now, the disciples will ask who's going to be the greatest among them. Peter would have been like, oh, that's obvious. I'm the rock. I have the keys. Not only that, throughout this, Peter is seen as one of great moments of faith and absolute utter gutters of weakness of faith. But, and this is where we, Protestants, go too far, is in a reaction to the historicity of how the Catholic Church has viewed Peter, We try to make Peter as just this random guy who just fell into things. When it's pretty clear, Peter is being emphasized as a leader. He is being chosen for a certain position. And you see the clarity of it in in throughout the rest of the Gospels, both in Luke Luke, Luke 22, where it's explicitly Jesus said, Satan has asked for you. Peter, he wants to sift you. And he lets him know, but when you rise. And and then in John, afterwards, after the resurrection, what does he say to John? After, I mean, what does he say to Peter? After the interaction with, you know, telling them that he's going to betray him. And then afterwards says what? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. So Peter is a leader in the early church, and the clarity of that is the first half of the book of Acts. He's the first one to preach the gospel after they get the Spirit. He's making these interactions as he's he's a leader in the church, just as in the second half of the book of Acts, you have Paul. Peter fades away, Paul comes to primacy, all these things, in terms of primacy being the main character or the main person you're watching as the gospel goes from the Jews to the Gentiles. But there's nowhere in the New Testament that would portray Peter as any kind of above or beyond any other man. Paul is new to the faith and he rebukes Peter to his face because he's being a hypocrite by eating and acting like 
a Gentile with the Gentiles, but eating and acting like a Jew with the Jews. And so Paul's like, that's hypocritical. I'm going to call this guy out who Paul says is a pillar of the faith. But he's just a man. Not only that, we see someone who's not an apostle in the book of Acts. The Council of Jerusalem. When they're talking about the gospel going to the Gentiles and Paul and and Barnabas give a report of, of so many coming to faith. And so what kind of strictures do we put on these Gentiles? They didn't grow up with the law. They didn't grow up with the prophets or the writings. Do we make them get circumcised? Do we make them adhere to the cultural laws of Leviticus and, and, and the, the Torah? And they come up with this idea, with, with the, the standards they have for them, which is essentially don't do weird things like eat food, sacrifice to idols, and, and keep yourself pure and, and that kind of thing. But then James who is an elder in the church of Jerusalem, is the one who stands up and makes the final judgment. So there's really nowhere in the New Testament that shows Peter as any type of supreme authority of the church. If anything, all of the evidence is the opposite of that. So even if you just look at the total, totality of Peter in the New Testament, you can't come to the conclusion that Jesus is saying this one is the leader of the church, and he has the keys. Otherwise, Paul would have not said, you're a hypocrite, because Peter had been like, bam, locked out. But again, that's just kind of looking in a logical conclusion of what we see in the New Testament. The language itself pointing to the confession. And now going back down, now to this, this idea of we're actually skipping the keys and coming back to it, but I want to go to this aspect of, excuse me, sorry, I tell you, you are Peter, on this rock I will build my church, in this next part, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus calls it my church. Now, what is the church being built on? The confession of one who is dead in their sins and trespasses, who has been given faith, an understanding by God Almighty that they are a creature fallen and broken and the creator God has made a way through Christ the Son. And that understanding comes from God, not of natural man. And as such, he paints a picture of hell and its gates. And this is another thing that we kind of sometimes get wrong. We simply say something like, that means Satan won't defeat God, which is true. But the picture of hell as a city with walls and a gate and its hoarding souls of people, meaning prior to your confession, prior to Peter's confession and understanding of the gospel, his place that he was destined for is hell. And so as the gospel goes forward, the gates are shattered. And the lost, the broken, the sinner who is destined for hell is plucked because they've believed. And then now that confession they give, they're released from bondage and captivity 
from sin and hell and death as the consequence is another stone being built on Christ's church. Do you see it? The confession, the belief, the understanding that results in faith coming from God is the announcement of the defeat of sin and death. And every time a person comes to faith in Christ, think about this. The gate is just remains broken and another is plucked out. When we think about people's destiny, when we think about the end, have you ever considered that? Your unbelieving friends, co-workers, family members, where are they destined to go? It's not Disney World, although there's similarities between Gehenna and That's for people, if they're watching, they're not. They're on rides right now. (laughs) It's hell. When you share the gospel with someone, you're not having an intellectual argument, and you're not trying to best them with all of the apologetic grandeur that you've gathered over the years of the books you've read. You're contending for a prisoner who is chained and destined for eternal punishment. And when God says, that's mine, there's nothing that Satan can do. There's nothing the gates of hell can do. And that soul is plucked from one eternal location to another. One is damnation. One is glory. And Peter, the man, has nothing to do with that. All the glory goes to God. You are the rock. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These beautiful verses are magnifying the reality of what the church is doing. In chapter 23 of the same book, Jesus will accuse the scribes and the Pharisees of, guess what? Locking the doors of the kingdom of God. And that every disciple they make, they become what is in in the language essentially hell bound. So what's the contrast here? The Pharisees who have his opponents, the, the Sadducees who are his opponents, the scribes who are his opponents... What they're teaching the people about God is false. And when people follow them, they are those souls that are going to hell because they close the kingdom of God to them. The church, the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, opens the gates. And when a person comes to faith, 
here and now. The kingdom is here. It is now because Christ has come and inaugurated it. But it is not in its fullness. Its fullness comes when Christ returns. But every time a soul, an individual, believes and is snatched out of hell and destined for glory, the church or the confession, this is this idea of the keys of the kingdom are open. And what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. What happens with that belief is guaranteed in heaven. The idea of loosing or believing or understanding or loosing being tied to the confession that Peter makes. That's beautiful. That's glorious. This confession, this understanding, God's work in the heart of sinful man. And it, but yet it's not through. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. I know I reversed it. It was on purpose. The binding aspect is unfortunately the closing. And again, this isn't the work of man. Imagine having that power. As frivolous as you all are, I include myself in that. Not just the you people. Imagine you have the power after you step on your kids' Legos to determine if they get to go to heaven or not. (laughs) Maybe they they draw you a pretty picture a couple days later and you're like, all right, you're back. Because the reality is if any one of us had that power, that's what it would be. You're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. I mean, I'm in. Now I'm out. The reality is is that that is no power that a human can handle. And it's not one that's given to us with just a plain reading of the text. You want to know something? I'm trying not to do like an anti-Catholic thing. And so, but just as a reality, the whole Peter as successor, how that was even done was reversed engineered centuries later like you're talking like the sixth century and then moving forward people begin looking back and if you look in the catholic catechism often what they quote isn't scriptures it's the church fathers but it's funny i like research and so looking at all of that this week what you'll find is it's not until the seventh century that someone says that the pope in in Rome is primary and he follows the suit uh, in Peter's succession and so every uh, uh, bishop of Rome is Peter's successor and they have the keys and all that stuff all the other ones that they use and there's a lot of them by the way from the second century forward are church fathers or church leaders from the time of church history where in big names Irenaeus, Ignatius, uh, Cyprian and Tertullian and all these people But what they always say is that they should look to Rome because it was the home of two glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. And there's never a mention of Peter as primary. But those are the verses, those are the histories that are quoted on why the Pope has primacy and has the keys And that would later become years later where you'd get the idea of ex cathedra when a pope sits in the chair and is able to look back in the history of the church and go, now that person's in heaven. 
Now that person's in heaven. Heaven. In 1954, 1954, a pope decided that Mary was actually sinless. Just decided in his chair, not his golf cart. Sinless. And gave her the title Queen of Heaven. Yet we know from Scripture that only one was sinless. See the point of what happens when someone has that power? Not to mention... In the Middle Ages, there was one time where there were three popes at once. And all of Europe was behind one of the three. And one would say to the other two, you and all of your followers are anathema or going to hell. And then the other one said, you and all. So at all times, two-thirds of Europe was going to hell. That's what happens when man gets the keys to the kingdom. We know this with clarity. Don't give us that kind of power. And God never intended to. Here's a few thoughts. The confession that Peter made, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, has pre-understandings to it. Meaning, That in this world, the Jewish world, it's clear from Genesis 1. There's one God who created all things. He sustains all things. He controls all things. He's in charge of all things. He created man in his image. Gave him a sacred duty to tend the garden. Said it was not good for him to be alone. So he gave him a mate to be his helper. And they together were to tend this garden. Glorify God in his work and her helpfulness. And their two becoming one. They were to fill the earth with their descendants. And, and they were to do so with the idea of filling the earth and subduing it and working it and tending it would bring it to the beauty and perfection God had in store for it and as a possession for them. And yet, They sin. And they put all of their descendants then under this curse of sin. And and the curse of sin calls for death. And now, throughout all of human history, death reigns. And this one God, there are no others, creates a way for his people that he had determined before he created everything that the triune God would send the second person, the Son, to take on flesh for one reason, to be the Lamb. To purchase and take on the curse of those God has appointed to be His because there is no other way for them to do it. And then He does just that. He marches to his destiny of humiliation in its fullness for you and for me. 
and for all who God will snatch out of hell and put into his family in glory. Anything, no matter what it has in the title, church of this, church of that, that teaches the opposite or extra is not a church that's just getting it wrong a little bit. It's another religion. Do not be fooled. If someone says Jesus is unique, yes, but there are a bunch of other gods like Jesus who have their own planets that they rule. You are reading science fiction. It's Christian heresy. If someone separates the Trinity and says, yeah, the Father, he's God, Jesus, he created, but then everything else is is in Christian lingo, that isn't Christianity that's just getting it wrong. It's another religion. In every religion or spiritual belief system or whatever it might be that does not hold fast to the gospel is Christian heresy. Understand that. There was no debate about that here. So let's not be flimsy in this age of where anything can paste Christian on the side and teach everything and and do everything completely counter to what the teachings of the scriptures are. Mormonism is not Christianity. It's a false religion. Jehovah's Witness isn't Christianity. It's a false religion. Islam is an easy one. But even within Christianity, how do you count someone who makes God one and lessens the Father and the Son and yet still has all the tenets which seem Christianity and go, oh, we're getting a little bit wrong. It's another religion. I'm going to close with these thoughts. Outside of all the false teaching, outside of everything that kind of goes haywire that I was talking about earlier, I want you to consider these things. If you are in Christ, you are part of the church, you were given that knowledge by God himself in his love for you, he placed you as a stone in the church that is being built, in the kingdom that will come. You were once snatched out of hell as your destiny and instead placed in his kingdom. And now, while you are kingdom citizens in the here and now, We will one day be a part of that eternal kingdom and that blessed hope. And the people that you interact with, that God blesses you with the opportunity to interact with, they're still behind the gates. Their destiny is hell. Don't miss the opportunity to share your faith. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you for this glorious truth. We thank you for being part of the church in which God has placed us. He has chosen us in eternity past. We have been recipients of his grace. Our curse has been paid for, our rightful price for our sin by birth and choice, purchased on the cross. Out of slavery and sin and death, and now is a a sacred possession of the Most High, an adopted son and daughter with equal share, an inheritance that we have not earned, an inheritance we cannot work for, but because God has bestowed His love on us, God, now let us take that in our lives and in the world that we're a part of and share that with those who are perishing around us. God, may you be glorified in our midst. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Amen.